HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Fine Diners Over 40, a members-only dinner club for singles and couples who enjoy dining at highly rated restaurants and sharing the experience with others. Learn more at finedinersover40.com. That's finedinersover40.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. To the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Victoria James, beverage director at Cote in New York City and author of Drink Pink, a celebration of rosé. We'll talk to Victoria about wine, rosé, a little Korean barbecue, and more. We'll taste a Bordeaux from Saint Emilion for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Victoria James got an early start in the restaurant biz at about 13. She blazed her path as a server, bartender, and sommelier working at Harry's on Hanover Square, Oriole, Marini, Piora, and now as beverage director of Coat in New York City. Victoria became a certified psalm at 21 has been named a Wine and Spirits Best New Sommelier, Forbes and Zagat's 30 Under 30, and a Wine Enthusiast 40 Under 40 Tastemaker. Victoria James, a rosé evangelist, is author of Drink Pink, A Celebration of Rosé, which was published last May. Welcome to the Great Nation. Thank you for having me, Sam. Did I get all that right? Wow, you should do my PR. Okay. <laughs> Sounds great. I'll be glad to. All right. Thank you for coming on The Grape Nation. We have a lot to talk about. But before we get started, let's frame who you are. Give us a quick background. Hang on that word quick. (laughs) Um, About your journey in life and wine that got you to where you are today, which is Coat. And you have the book currently out. Yes. Okay. So quickly. I started working in restaurants, as you mentioned, when I was 13. Um, Restaurants, meaning a greasy spoon diner under the train tracks. (laughs) And from there, progressed into a few other diners. And when I became 18, started bartending on uh, Restaurant Row here in New York. You could bartend? Legally in 18 in New York State. Yeah, you just obviously cannot imbibe. (laughs) Right, which you didn't, of course. No, of course not. And uh, so from there learned how to make cocktails and about spirits. I found an old dusty copy of Wine for Dummies behind the bar and uh, just kind of went down the rabbit's hole from there and 
Googled where I could take a wine class in New York because I was at the time going to Fordham University studying psychology. And uh, so I took a wine class with the ASA. And um, from there, I took another wine class. And uh, then I found myself taking a semester off of school. And then I joined uh, Harry's at Hanover Square as a cellarat. And I also bartended for them as well. And our goal there was to kind of reorganize reorganize Harry's Cellar, which is, you know, this crazy Massive. cellar. Insane. And it goes back to, he started buying in the 60s, you know, when Burgundy and Bordeaux, this Saint-Emilion probably would have been $5 a bottle. Um, so it was really great to be able to touch those bottles and see those classic producers and learn about classic vintages and just work next to someone like Harry. Um, and then I worked harvest in California with Michael Terrian in Sonoma, who was previously the winemaker for Hansel and now has his own label. And then from there I became 21. So I applied to be a sommelier at Oriole and thankfully somehow got the job. You just applied and got the job. <laughs> it's a little bit more intricate than that, but oh, I think but you, you said quick. Job. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I got the job and, um, then, you know, became certified as a sommelier with the court, which I felt was important to me being so young. I needed some sort of button or something to say I was legit. Right. And uh, then from there, worked at Oriole for two years as a sommelier. And then um, the beverage director's best friend, Justin Lorenz, his best friend was Risto Zofsky, who does all of the Altamaria Group restaurants. So I wanted something new and they were opening up a restaurant and I had never opened a restaurant before. So with him, I uh, joined the Altamaria Group sommelier team and we opened... Uh, when was this? How old? What year? How old? <laughs> so this was 2013, December 2013. So I was 23. And you had got your certification as a sommelier yeah. at 21, right? At 21. So you were on your way. You're now a certified yeah. sommelier. You're at the Rest Moraya Group, mm -hmm. and you're opening a restaurant, which is? Ristorante Marini on that free side. Right. Uh, quickly, sort of my role dissipated, um, and so they moved me to their flagship Moraya. So in that early 2014, I moved there. Where I was was for, that okay? That was pretty great. I mean, it sounds like it was fine, right? <laughs> it was stellar. It, you know, it was a very steep learning curve. Um, Oriole was a Michelin-starred restaurant, still is, but um, Marais is two Michelin stars, and it's a world away. It's, I mean, I was just a girl wearing a cheap polyester suit in a dining room where, you know, there are just a bunch of pariahs. <laughs> so definitely nerve-wracking. But the staff there... Were they the pariahs or just the whole environment, the customers, the management? You know, um, I was fortunate that a lot of the staff were really lovely to work with and I'm still friends with a lot of them. You know, every restaurant group has some of it, some bad seeds. So uh, that that is what it is. Um, and then, you know, a lot of the guests were really lovely as well, but it's, it's challenging. And right. to be a young girl. Different class yeah. of guests. <laughs> totally. And Type what they spend, their demands. And who the hell am I to tell them what to buy kind of thing. Right. So that, that was definitely a steep learning curve, um, but I survived to tell the tale. You did it for, what, a couple of years? Yes. And then October 2015, um, moved to Peora with Simon Kim. And Simon is Simon. the owner of Peora? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How'd that come about? What was the matchup there? So I wanted to run my own program. Um, I was, you know, pretty arrogant of me, but I thought, well, I'm, you know, 25 now. I've been a sommelier now for four years. I can probably buy wine. And um, also a steep learning curve. Our One of our managers at Morea had gone over to be the general manager at Piora. Ah, and so he brought connection. me over. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I was at Piora until we opened up Coat, uh, which was June of last year. Okay. So we're going under a little less than a year. Mm -hmm. So you've been a Coat currently right. since June running the beverage program there. Right. So we opened Coat in June. Okay. Uh, so it's a brand new restaurant um, and we're not even a year old. Okay. But we were fortunate in that we, as soon as we opened, we just got, you know, such great reviews and press. And well, I'll come to Coat um, in a little bit. I wanted to ask you a bunch of questions. Do you, <laughs> you have any regrets for not finishing college? Um, no, no regrets. None, right? I, I'm told I will, though, soon regret it. But I'm Why? waiting for that day. I don't know. I mean, have a piece of paper. I'm not sure. Does becoming a certified sommelier sort of offset that a little? Like, hey, I have this. 
here's this piece of paper. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think education is important, but I don't think it's the end all be all. No, not, there was a generation that thought so. Yeah. Now getting out there and doing it is just as important. Right. You know, and, and what you're doing sort of exhibits and exemplifies that. Um, I'm curious about one thing. How influential was working at Harry's? And I got to frame the question because, you know, this is a bigger than life guy. This is a legendary wine collection. You know, not not ordinary. Um, famous place. If you had worked at a smaller restaurant with sort of an uncharismatic owner, <laughs> the impact, I would guess, would be different. So being surrounded by all that wine and having a passionate guy like Harry... Did that shape you or send you on your way or that was just, I mean, was that a big deal? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That was a huge deal. Um, I mean, I don't think I realized until later how fortunate I was. I think a big mistake that a lot of young people make getting into this industry is maybe working at like the new cool place or, um, right. So I think that at Harry's, I was the exact opposite. Harry's is not necessarily a cool place to go, but it is classic New York. And the exposure I had to these wines, um, that still a lot of them I've never, I have not seen or tasted since then. Did you realize a little of that then? I mean, did you realize, Jesus, I'm in the cellar amongst the greats (laughs) or like you said, you didn't realize till later. Well, no, I mean, I think I realized a a bit. Uh, I was definitely a fish out of water for um, quite some time. And, you know, every single day at Harry's in the cellar was just so magical and eye opening. And hearing especially, you know, from Harry himself when he bought the wine, what it was like then, what it was like 10 years later when he drank it, what it was like 20 years later when he drank it and what it tastes like today. Walking encyclopedia. Exactly. So am I right? I mean... That had an effect more than if, I mean, it was a pretty big deal, right? Yeah. And also, you know, the Harry's is, Harry's is classic New York hospitality. And I, I kind of want to bring that back as well because it's, it's not, you know, Harry has, of course, this encyclopedic knowledge, but he doesn't flaunt it on his guests. Right. And that's what's so magical. He just makes them feel good. Right. And I think that that's often what is missing in a lot of restaurants. Well, don't sommeliers get knocks sometimes for being aloof or erudite or <laughs> is that a fair? Yeah, for sure. They can know. be straight up snobs. Yeah. I mean, Harry went the other way. Right. I mean, and he's not certified. All right. I want to ask you about women and wine because it's always a big topic on this show and it's a big topic in the industry. And with you, it's interesting because you got a very early start at probably one of the most manly places, <laughs> you know, Wall Street, Harry's and all that. Um, did you notice being a woman in wine? I mean, did you did you feel any pushback from men? Did you feel it to be sort of a men's business? You know, was it the old story that when you got to a table, people would say, send the sommelier over? Or yeah. you didn't have much of that experience? Um, no, I mean, it was a lot of that. Um, It was. It's, it's less now. Uh, but at Harry's, it was, it was very difficult. What do you do? You suck it in and you're (laughs) determined to. Yeah. I mean, you try and feign confidence when you don't have it. And you, you know, maybe some nights you'd end up in the bathroom crying because someone hurt your feelings, but you get over it and it's good because it gives you a tough skin. But I think what you know, in retrospect, what I wish I would have done is maybe stand up for myself more. How would you know then? I mean, it's easy to look back. (laughs) Right. And you got a younger start than most people. Yeah. You know, so it it was a tougher thing. Um, I think there were two issues there. You were very young Mm -hmm. and I think the industry has changed. I mean, I think there are more women, there's more acceptance. Um, Do you still sense or feel any separation or, you know, women don't get the same knock men get? Yes, sometimes. I mean, there are definitely more women in the industry and I think it's wonderful, but it's it's still towards like the top. There are very, there are very few female buyers at Michelin star restaurants. There are very few women restaurant owners. There are very few women actually holding the power. So it can be fine now for a female to be a sommelier and sell you some wine, 
but there are even some winemakers or distributors that have problems with... So it's a classic example. There are women in the field respected, but in the higher jobs, yeah, the important jobs, there well, should be changing. more... Yeah. I mean, it's, it's changing in a lot of industries. Yeah. Um, but it's good that you pointed that out, and hopefully you'll sit with me in a couple of years, <laughs> and we'll look back at that and say... <laughs> Um, that even changed. Yeah. Um, so you learned wine. I mean, you got into the business before you, I mean, you started with wine for dummies. Yeah. <laughs> then years later, you know, you got certified. Um, I, to me, it sounds like you learned wine by restaurant and region. Like, mm-hmm. let's start with Harry's. Yeah. That was one restaurant. That was more the classics. Mm-hmm. You know, then you went to Marini and probably got exposed to more Italian than normal. Yeah. Then you went to Marea, which is sort of that cult rock star list. So you get hit with the Burgundies <laughs> yeah. and the Cali Colts and all the Bordeaux. Isn't it fair to say that that was sort of, totally. you know, your learning process? Then you organized it, you know, with your psalm and all of that stuff. Exactly. I would say as much. And also with people, too. You get to learn how to work with different people. You know, when I was on Restaurant Row, we were a small mom and pop place. Right. And you get that old world mentality in New York. At Harry's, you get the classic Wall Street crowd and those, you know, big dollars and spenders. And, and then you go to the Upper East Side, Ristrante Marini. Well, the Upper East Side. I don't. <laughs> Neighborhoody, wealthy. Totally. You know, kind of not yeah. clueless. You know, totally. Which, which is interesting. So the type of wines and the type of customers, yeah. the mm-hmm. exposure and all that. One thing I couldn't figure out with you, through all of that, through the Harry's experience, Maria, Marini, now even Coat, I can't figure out, like, what is your wine preference? Like, I had Michael Engelman, Cedric Nikhazy, you know, Burgundy, Burgundy. Did you acquire a love and a taste for a particular wine or region? Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, there's no right answer. <laughs> you don't have to say, oh, yeah, Bordeaux. Right. No, um, you know, I think it, it, it got me interested in so many different wines, and I love so many, so many great wines. I think that I like wines that are correct, that are classic. So tell me, give me a definition of... Correct more than classic. Classic's easier for me to decipher. What's correct to you? I don't want like a fucked up natural wine. Like I want something that tastes good. Okay. Not saying all natural wines are terrible, but that's one part of it. What else is correct? A wine that tastes like a place and the people who made it and just kind of honors those centuries of tradition. Um, That's kind of my preference. Okay. So you're... You're pretty general. You know, you're pretty not general. the Burgundian. You're obviously not the natural uh, <laughs> wine person and all of that. Um, so we talked about this a little off air, and you threw it right on the table. I, I sensed from, you know, doing a little research that you were not a big natural wine fan. Uh, I think you put the gauntlet right down. <laughs> Why is that? Would, they're not correct because of inconsistency I mean there are there's terroir and mm. people that are really part of the wine why right. doesn't it excite you so there are so many great natural wines okay there are um, natural is such a broad scope so I don't want to say I don't like natural wines right. I don't think that's fair um, but I think uh, more often than not there's a camp of people who are like natural only that's all I drink and that can be a problem you know I mean everything like on our wine list now at Coat, all of the producers usually follow like loot resonate, which means the reason struggle. And those are the producers I like to support. So it means... Wait, say that again. Loot resonate. So loot, spell loot for me. L-U-T-T-E. Loot and then... And then raisonne, Right. And that means... The reasoned struggle. Which... Give me a little explanation. So essentially it means that the growers will try to remain natural, but listen, if they have to spray, they're going to spray. Their intentions are... Right. Their intentions are good. And who am I to say, oh, you shouldn't spray because you should be natural. And then they lose their crop or, you know, it gets infiltrated with mold. I mean, so listen, growing grapes is farming and I think we should support it. And I think we should support the small growers. But I don't sustainability. think sustainability, but I don't think it's the end all be all. No. And a lot of wines that people don't even realize have been farmed 
organically or even bi- biodynamically for years. Yeah, totally. You know, names that people are not aware. Um, do you have any natural wines on the list? Yeah, we have some natural wines. You have um, like a pet nat section with 30 entries? <laughs> no, we don't uh, have 30 pet nats, but we okay. have, like yesterday, so we have um, Catherine Pierre Breton's Grelot from the Loire Valley, which when you open it's reductive and tastes bad, but then you decant it and it blows off. So, you know, I mean, we that's, have... That's part of what drives you crazy, I guess. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's talk about coat a little. That's a good segue into uh, coat. I'm interested about a bunch of things with Coat, mm-hmm. um, the program you put together, the food and everything. Let's talk about how the restaurant come about. Peora, you worked at, which are the same people mm-hmm. that closed down. Why and how did Coat come about? Yeah, so Coat is the brainchild of Simon Kim, our owner. And he has had this dream of a Korean steakhouse for the last 10 years. But being, of course, a Korean American in the fine dining world, he worked for Thomas Keller before and Jean Georges. You know, Korean cuisine isn't necessarily as celebrated as, say, French or Italian. So for sure, New York a little more, but generally, totally. generally. Yeah. So um, you know, but he op- wanted to open up his own restaurant. So he opened up Piora, and it was very successful. It got a Michelin star right away, and it was this beautiful jukebox little restaurant in the West Village. Um, and I joined him later about after they were open already for two years. And so, so I got you to stepped into the wine program. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, and then I continued to work with him there for another, you know, two years until, you know, the idea was to keep Peora open uh, and then also open up Simon's Dream Restaurant Coat. And the opportunity finally came about to do so. And he got all of the money together and the right people. And he kind of assembled his dream team. And then, you know, things just happen. It's the restaurant industry. Made sense to focus yeah. on COVID. So, it was, you know, <laughs> this is something funny that actually uh, a restaurant veteran told me is there's a lot of things you learn about opening a restaurant, but there's so many things you learn by closing a restaurant. Right. <laughs> and that in itself was an experience. I mean, it is tough. And I wasn't yeah. even the owner of Piora, Simon was, but, you know... It, we're still dealing with a lot of things, and it's it's very, very challenging. So as that was happening, there was a nod to you to come over to Coat and help design and put together the beverage program? Right. That, that was made clear to you at the right time? Yeah. So the idea was that I would sort of run this restaurant group, um, the group being Piora and Coat. Right. So um, we had a sommelier at Piora, and then I uh, got a few sommeliers as well for Coat, and sort of created the wine list there and the beverage program in the bar. And uh, then Piora shuttered. So now we're focusing solely on Coat um, and expanding as well. So tell me about the wine list. You had the opportunity from mm. the ground up to design it, right? Yeah, and... So it's a chance for you to personalize. You have to be aware of the cuisine. Right. The market and all that. Mm -hmm. So what was the process in designing and, you know, what did the list become? Yeah, so, I mean, I had never had Korean barbecue before. I'm, you know, I never... never, You never went out with friends? No, never. So good. I know, I learned. Yeah. So the first thing Simon did was take us out for a Korean barbecue. Um, to Korea town. To Korea town, K town. <laughs> and, you know, instantly I saw a need for the food. The food's great, but it definitely needs to be in a more approachable, elevated space. And there's things that can be done better. The quality of the meat can be better. The silverware can be better. The ventilation can be better. So that's essentially what Simon did. Um, Those were the elements. It was a cool yeah. experience, but not elevated. Exactly. And Simon always had that vision. Always. And that's where... And translate to wine, too, Exactly. Right? So that's where the beverage program came in. So uh, craft cocktails, um, local ingredients. And then for the wine program, you know, it's interesting because we're also opening a restaurant at the same time. And opening a restaurant in New York is incredibly frustrating and, you know, detrimental to any budget. So you build this dream wine list or this dream bar program, and then 
you know, you can't open for a month because the gas isn't on. So you cut that budget in half <laughs> and wow. uh, then you reorganize everything. And then everything is thrown at you. Everything. And then, you know, you can't open for another month now. And now you have to reorganize the whole thing. And then you have to get creative. You have to figure out, oh, shoot, should I pull in like some consignment things? Can I like work on some partnerships? So it was such a great learning experience. And, uh, and you did go through all that delayed yeah. openings and budget oh, yeah. change and shifts and all of that. So when the time came and the doors opened, mm -hmm. what'd the list look like? So the list was about, when we opened, I would say around 800 selections. Okay. Pretty big. And, um, a focus on French, Italy, and the U S red and, versus white or not necessarily a lot, lots of red for sure. It's a steakhouse because of meat, mm -hmm. right? But a lot of champagne, a lot of rosé, and a lot of white wine, too. Right. Um, you know, just like any steakhouse, you know, I thought of Harry's. And when I was at Harry's, um, people start with white burgundy. They start with Chablis. Right. They start with champagne. Champagne. Um, and then, of, of course, rosé. And, you know, with the meat, you might have some red wine. Right. So this that same sort of steakhouse mentality. So of French, Italian, American, where's the heaviest mm. weight on the list? France, for France. sure. Mm -hmm. And within France, is it Bordeaux, Burgundy? Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of... So I think for me, what goes best, best with our cuisine, <coughs> rather, is uh, to juxtapose the richness, really fresh, crunchy, Beaujolais, Cru Beaujolais, Burgundy, um, to match the smoky flavors, Northern Rhone, Syrah. Um, Southern France is great as well, Languedoc, Rhone. And then also you can, like, Italy is always great. So, like, we have a lot of Barolo, Barbarescos, some Alianicos, Island Wines, um, Switzerland, too. Barolo is a good uh, match for, yeah, uh, you know, rich steakhouse marbled meats, meats and all yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my next question was, what pairs with Korean barbecue? <laughs> and you answered it. Yeah. And then, I mean, there's a lot of reds, but you singled out a half a dozen mm -hmm. that pretty much target that list. And then, you know, we're a classic steakhouse, but at the end for digestion purposes is when it gets Korean. That's when all the banchan come out and all the kimchi and fermented stews. But that's so, tough to pair stuff with, isn't so it? It's so tough. It's like what pairs with <laughs> asparagus. That's like 10 trays of asparagus almost, right? Yeah. And, you know, our clientele, they're so great. They're so open. So hopefully at that point, you actually kind of go backwards in a lot of people's minds. You actually switch over back to white, maybe something with some residual sugar right. or rosé or champagne. Right. You mentioned Swiss. A lot of mm -hmm. restaurants don't focus on Swiss. What's the attraction to Swiss? The wines are so good, they never leave the country. I know. They're greedy. So uh, what about them? So I love the wines. I went there for the first time in 2014 and, like you said, fell in love with them, but they don't leave the country. Right. So I always kind of made it a point in uh, at Pure and Coat to at least have a few um, and the really good ones. Um, yeah, no, so S Switzerland, uh, I think it's a fun thing for people to try um, who have not yet had the wines. What regions are exciting you now? You know, I think that I'm starting to kind of go <clears throat> back to a lot of the classics. I think I had for so many years, like these five, six years of my life where everything was so exciting to me and I was trying everything. Like? Like, um, you know, funky, <coughs> funky, weird Italy, Switzerland, right. Hungarian wine, um, Chilean wine. And I think now finally I'm kind of going full circle and getting back to my roots in the classics, um, rediscovering places like Bordeaux and the Loire Valley and Burgundy and the Rhone. Um, Is Loire classic to you? Yeah, I would say so. Okay. I mean, at least classic producers uh, within the Loire, but for sure, definitely a valley of experiments. When you talk Loire, you talk Shannon? Shannon could be, yeah, absolutely. What else? Or, you know, Cap Franc <coughs> or Sancerre Rouge. Um, I suppose I mentioned the Loire Valley only because it was a focus right. um, with the book and Rose. Okay. Um, all right, we're talking to Victoria James. Sorry about all my uh, coughing fits and all of that. Victoria is the uh, beverage director at Code in New York City. We're going to take a break. Regroup. We're going to talk about rosé. Then I'm going to subject Victoria to our wine list, and then we're going to taste a little uh, Bordeaux. So we'll be right back.
Come for the food, stay for the friends. Fine Diners Over 40 is a members-only dinner club for singles and couples who enjoy dining at highly rated restaurants and sharing the experience with others. Fine Diners Over 40 appreciate food as art, as cultural adventure, as scientific experiment, and best of all, food as an opportunity to take pleasure in the company of others. Join them for culinary and social adventures in New York and Seattle. Food may be the main attraction at Fine Diners Over 40 events, but it is the friendly and interesting members who carry the day. Join them for an evening of fine dining, fun, and stimulating conversation. While enjoying innovative tasting menus by first-rate chefs, you'll talk movies, theater, pets, sports, travel, and more. Epicurus said it best, we should look for someone to eat and drink with before looking for something to eat and drink. Learn more at finedinersover40.com. That's finedinersover40.com. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Victoria James. Victoria is the beverage director of Coat, a Korean steakhouse in New York. She is also the author of a book called Drink Pink, A Celebration of Rosé, which we'll talk about, but we'll talk about rosé a little before that. And again, I want to apologize for my coughing fit. I had to convince Victoria to come back in here. Um, all right, so let's talk a little about rosé, because it's a pretty big part of who you are and what you're doing. I mean, we talked about Code and you and the wine program, some of your preferences, but this has a nice little space in your heart. Um, first, let's tell our listeners who may or may not know, what is rosé? We know it's wine. We know it's pink. Mm-hmm. But why is it pink? How is it made? Yeah, um, there are a few different ways to make rosé. Uh, the first is n- not recommended, but happens sometimes. You take red wine, you take white wine, you blend it together, voila, rosé. Um, not really used in high-quality winemaking. The second is probably the most common, and that's essentially where it picks up a little bit of color from the skins. So if you have a red grape, the skins are red, but the juice is actually white or clear. And so you leave it on the skins for a little you bit. You leave it on the skins, and it picks up a little bit of color, um, even if you press it almost right away. What about a white grape? If you leave it on the skin, it'll pick up some color? Yeah, it'll become an orange wine. Or okay. Even in the book, I talk about uh, Romato-style Romato uh, Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio, right. which is a white grape with actually pink or copper skins. Right. Um, what... Are the processes in making it different as far as other wines, malolactic or yeah. yeasts and all of that? I mean, is, is it affected? can be. I mean, you know, rosé is so interesting because in so many ways, you know, it's such a broad category. It's right. like if you asked me to talk about white wine or red wine. It fits in there. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, I mean, you know, like it's, it's you know, I think rosé more than ever, it's becoming more terroir driven and specific. And It's so, more complex than... Totally. And so people aren't asking just for a rosé, just like they're not asking, they're not poning up to a bar and saying, give me a glass of red wine. They're saying, can I have a glass of Bordeaux? Right. Can I have a glass of Burgundy? And I right. think now you see people asking for Bandol rosé, uh, Sancerre rosé. People kind of understand that rosé can also have a place. So good lead in what, what are some exciting regions and wines making rosé now? I mean, you mentioned Bandol, which is classic provincial mm-hmm. rosé. Yeah. What type of grapes, what areas are making mm-hmm. stuff that's caught your attention? Yeah, so Bandol's classic, and there are a, you know, a few good producers there for sure. Um, I think getting outside of Provence, though, is important because Provence, just so much swill is pumped out now. Um, and there are some really cool other regions making great rosé. So, for like? example, we talked about the Loire Valley. Right. Um, if you look at a small little place called Ruri, Ruri makes a... Spell it. R-E-U-I-L-L-Y. Rui. Rui. In France? In France, in the Loire Valley. In the Loire Valley. Um, and they make technically a rosé, but it's made from Pinot Gris, which is a, a right. white grape. Right. So it picks up a little bit of color from the skins, um, and it's a very interesting 
white slash rosé. That's very unusual and definitely speaks to a place. Um, And then you have that same sort of style that's made in Italy and Friuli called Romato. And that's interesting. And then, of course, you have some cool examples from Austria in the south and Styria, like Schilcher, which is a historic style, but not often talked about. And that can be sparkling or still. Um, and you then don't see much of that. You really don't. No. no. Um, so I think that now the most exciting thing is that every region's making rosé. I mean, um, right. you, before, you know, like if you would go to South America, they would never dream of making rosé. They could never sell it. Um, Too manly. <laughs> To make it, was it? (laughs) Right. I mean, there's still that stigma for sure all over the world, um, and especially (laughs) within the community. But now every single region is making rosé. So that stigma has passed a little. Mm, I mean, it's there, but it's... it's, Let's talk about the stigmas. Very seasonal. Seasonal. Uh, feminine. I don't want to sound sexist, but feminine. Feminine. Mm -hmm. Um, Regional. Yeah. And cheap. A lot of people think it's cheap. And all of those stigmas have been busted. They've, you know, I think other examples have busted them. There's um, ones that are high quality that are really sort of on the forth, forefront of making, giving rosé a good name, rather. But, you know, there's still, a, just like there's so much shitty white wine and red wine out there, there's so Same much thing shitty rosé. Yeah. So well, there's so much shitty of every wine. <laughs> I know. You know. Um, do you, because of you, do you carry a lot of rosé at the restaurant? Or you have to limit it because of the... No, I mean, I I probably should limit myself, but I have a ton of rosé. Okay. And I have some cool things, you know, some rosé from Switzerland, some rosé with some age, some rosé in large format. Um, You know, I think that when I was writing the book, obviously, you become incredibly curious. And once you start to fall in love with these wines, all of a sudden you can't live without them. Right. Um, Where does rosé fit in in a high-end Korean steakhouse meal? It's actually one of the best things to pair with it. Really? Beginning, middle, and end? Yeah, I mean, it kind of... It's okay with a juicy bite of Wagyu. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, as long as it's the right rosé, as long as it has some structure, a good acidity to cut through the richness, right. you know, and it plays well with a lot of, like, those funky flavors, so... And I'm assuming you're curating different kinds to pair with all of yeah. that. Which is the reason you go to a great place with great wine and talk to people like Victoria. They'll help you hook that up. Yeah. All right, so... A little less than a year ago, you wrote a book called Drink Pink, A Celebration of Rosé. What compelled you to write that book? So I've always been interested in writing ever since I was a kid. Okay. And, um, you know, always kind of dreamt that it would be lovely to write a book, but um, by no means thought I could. And, uh, you know, I started doing a lot of freelance writing as... So book as a broad thing was something that interested you. In- indeed. So... One silo, then how did the rosé <laughs> thing come? So I started doing a lot of freelance writing, um, even when I was 21, 22, just as a way to sort of keep the information in my head. I started doing copy for a lot of uh, magazines and websites and... You Mostly know, wine writing? Oh, Almost all wine writing. Um, And that was sort of a way to help me organize it. And, you know, who doesn't want free labor? I pretty much wrote for free. Right. Um, It was good for you, too. (laughs) It was good for me, too. So uh, I participated in this one article for New York Magazine. um, And a literary agent came across it. And she said, hey, uh, would you be interested in maybe writing a book on Rosé? Wow. And I said, "Uh, no, at first. Why? The three stigmas you mentioned. Okay, not you know. the best wine topic. I'm a young girl. I mean, I, the, <laughs> what am I going to do? Be the, the pink girl, the rosé girl? I, know. I mean, tough corner. It's already people. It's so hard for people to get people to take me seriously. Right. So I said no at first, and then my boyfriend, now fiance at the time, who became my illustrator, uh, said, you know, kind of this, you know, fuck all of them. You like rosé, you know good rosé, why don't you actually share that with the masses and not be worried if someone pegs you as the rosé girl? You're a sommelier, and your job is to educate people on what's good and what's not. Pretty astute observation from a dude, <laughs> right? <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah, really. But he yeah. was right. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's and right. And that, that motivated you to move yeah. on to the project. 
Yeah. So I said yes. And they gave me about a month to write a proposal. And luckily I happened to know an illustrator. <laughs> My fiance went to art school and, um, yeah, and then it all came together. So it took you how long to write the book? All in all with edits and everything about six months. But, um, you know, the content, I only had really one month to write. It was, uh, so what insane. kind of, you know, you're working, you have this mm -hmm. sort of frenetic, busy job. What kind of research and or travel were you doing for this? Did you have to? Were you doing it? Yeah. So, I mean, at this point in my career, I was so lucky that all of these regions I've talked about, I, I talk about rather, I've been to. And so I've already met with all of these winemakers. And so... Through your years in the business. <laughs> my few years, right. but... <laughs> um, so, my illustrious career in <laughs> the wine business. Uh, you know, I was sort of voracious in, in my travel there um, right. and really kind of picking up that knowledge. So even though it was a short period of time, I was able to reach out to these winemakers uh, because I had already been there right. and say, hey, now I'm writing this book on rosé. What was in your cuvee again? Or how do you make that again? I want to write about it. Um, and, you know, people are just when they believe in a project, they're so helpful. And so the I, access becomes the, more important in the stories. Totally. Are the story. Right. So like who's who's the woman? Is it Bandol? Lulu Peyrot from Tampier, yeah. Yeah, from Tampier. So I mean she's this old she's, legendary She's a hundred years old. To go back and talk to her is insane. Yeah. And so I went back and talked to her for the book in um, January two years ago. And that was just an experience in itself. And um you know, also it opens up doors. So through that open up the doors to Kermit Lynch, who opened up the doors to Alice Waters, to Jacques Pepin, to all of these people I would have never had access to, to interview for the book. Well, Kermit was a huge early purveyor, cheerleader, oh, yeah. importer of... He was the of, biggest proponent of rosé. Right. That type of wine. Cool. And very, right. Focused on the makers and all of that. Right. So he used to import it. He couldn't sell it, so he just imported it for himself to drink. Right, right. <laughs> so... Travel, talking to people, mm -hmm. inspired you to really put the bulk and the body of this together. Yeah, absolutely. And all of that. And then there's a couple of cool connections. You had mentioned it. You collaborated with um, Lyle. Mm -hmm. Lyle is now your fiance. Mm -hmm. Lyle did the illustrations, yeah. which give the book a really neat, bouncy yeah, feel. for sure. You know, it kind of makes the experience. How was it like working with Lyle? I mean, were you on the same page as far as the project wow. vision? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've ever worked with a significant other on a very time-sensitive, high-pressure project. A lot. <laughs> it is, um, you know, I think it was, it would have either split us up or brought us closer. I mean... Do your sensibilities match or no? <laughs> So he, we're, we're such different people. Um, he's very creative and we had essentially a month to do, I had to do the bulk of the writing in a month and he had to do a hundred illustrations in a month. And so I, of course, so stop there for a second. Did you have the material you needed to sit down for that month and write it? You, you were comfortable there. Yeah. It's just, how do I get it all out and everything? Exactly. Okay. Um, and then of course and I, and then Lyle has to do a hundred illustrations. Okay. That sounds easy. <laughs> What's the big deal? So, you know, of course, I'm very type A. So I had the first draft already in within two weeks. Okay. And then he waited until the last, like, ten days, not even, almost three days to do all of the to illustrations. deadline? It was... That I mean, had you climbing up a wall. <laughs> it was... I thought I was going to go crazy. So you said it could bring you together or apart. <laughs> At some point, you go, uh, Lyle, this is like my book, our book. You know, there's supposed to be a hundred illustrations. You did six. I mean, what's the answer there? <laughs> you know, so Lyle's also, I mean, he has an incredibly demanding job. And so, you know, at the time, well, Lyle's in the business, he's in the business, works with somebody we just mentioned, right? Kermit Lynch. Right. So he sells, he does national sales. So he's in a different state almost every day. Right. So, so he travels a lot. Right. So <laughs> oftentimes I would get on the phone with him and say, where are your illustrations? <laughs> and then he would come back and, you know, you've been traveling all week and you're exhausted. So you know, he got them done and he actually works better under pressure, which I now know. Some people work. Yeah. So I think next time though, I might give him a fake deadline. <laughs> 
think so, about that. Yeah. That's Wait till you have kids. <laughs> when you want to leave the house at noon, you tell them 1130 and maybe yeah. you get out five up. So, you know, Lyle, he's not a kid, but maybe with this project. Exactly. Did you get the writing bug? Do you want to... Yeah, so since then, I have definitely gotten the writing book. And Do you have ideas floating around? So I actually finished the first draft of oh. book number two. Same publisher? Uh, we're not sure yet. Okay. So my agent's editing How now. much can you tell us? Um, nothing. It's about wine? <laughs> it's about wine. Okay. It's, and it's um, more narrative. Okay. It's not as specific as rosé or whatever. Correct. All right, so the book's called Drink Pink, A Celebration of Rosé. It's less than a year old. I, From what I hear, it's doing well. Um, let me point out, Victoria and I are sitting in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is the middle of February, which is legitimately and literally the middle of winter. It's about 80 degrees out, <laughs> and it's just the perfect time to talk about rosé and drink rosé, and yeah. soon enough, you know, we'll be there. Um, all right, so I want you to, uh, I want to subject you to my wine list. I want to ask you a bunch of questions yeah. about your wine preferences. And normally it's straight up. I'm going to do the special Victoria version, <laughs> wine and rosé. So okay, instead cool. of one answer, there's two. All right. So the first question we ask everybody is, what are you drinking now? What are you drinking for the restaurant, for the list, you're trying, mm -hmm. what's on your table, at home? Beaujolais, lots and lots of crew Beaujolais. Always or now recently more? Now recently more than okay. ever. Um, you know, I've kind of gotten to this point now where over the last few months I've just been trying so many different wines. It's nice to, for a few weeks, take a break and just drink something that's easy and light and fresh. It's a hot wine, Beaujolais. It's the Gamay grape, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the crew stuff is made by some famous makers and, mm -hmm. and um, better wines. Give me a couple of faves. Yeah, so um, Guy Breton is one of my favorites. Spell and the last name. Breton, B-R-E-T-O-N. Okay. Um, and so his Renier is very famous, and that's a crew in northern Beaujolais. Um, but he just recently made um, a Cote de Brie, which is another crew, um, because he didn't have enough fruit, so he had to outsource. Not exact, but retail ballpark price points? Yeah, I mean, it's not a super expensive wine. We're talking like 20 to $30 oh, here. Um, and that's the great thing about Cru Beaujolais. You can just kind of crush it and not worry about breaking the bank. Give me one more maker that you like. Yeah, so kind of the godfather, uh, Jean-Paul Thévenet. He's, um, I mean, the wine's amazing. And it's Spell also... So Thévenet, um, there's a couple accents over the E's. It's T-H-E-V-E-N-E-T. Right. Um, Jean-Paul Thévenet. And retail-wise, similar price, a little more? A little bit more, okay. um, but still around the 30-ish range. Okay. Um, so not too pricey. Do you think... Beaujolais are a good replacement for Burgundies price-wise, or there's really no comparison or yeah, consideration? Well, you know, Beaujolais is Burgundy. Right. We <laughs> so, know that. It's a part of yeah, Burgundy. But, you know, I mean, I think, listen, if you're going to walk into a wine shop and you want to spend $30 on a bottle of Burgundy, you're not going to get anything good can, from the North, with very few exceptions. Get a rock star Beaujolais like exactly. the two makers. Okay. All right. Are you trying any new rosés right now? Yes, I am. Anything cool on the table? Yeah, so, you know, I try not to taste the rosés from this new vintage, the 2016. Um, it's a little too soon. I mean, they okay. just kind of landed in market, and that's always a little worrisome. You kind of got to give it some time to chill. Um, but so recently I've had this rosé from Switzerland called Domaine de Montmelin. It's a Neuchâtel. Um, so Spell the domain. Domaine de Montmelin. So Mont, like mountain. M-O-N-T. And then Moulin, M-O-L-L-I-N. Okay. And I'm um, gonna, we post all this oh, great. on our social media sites so people could look oh, nice. for or try or ask for it. So, um, yeah, so it's a wall de Perdri, which means eye of the partridge. And it's this beautiful light Pinot Noir rosé that's nice. really great. Nice. Uh, easier to get at restaurants than at stores? Um, you'll Impossible. just have to come to Cote. Okay. <laughs> well, that's part of why you go to Cote, to get wines you won't see anywhere else and exactly. to have you pick them. All right, let's talk, next question, favorite wine and food pairing. I'm looking for two answers. Give me your traditional 
wine and food pairing, mm-hmm. and then give me a rosé and food, food pairing. pairing. Yeah, sure. Stuff um, that you like that you eat over and over. Mm-hmm. You can't. We have a rule on the Great Nation. You can't say champagne and oysters. Oh, okay. You could say muscadet and oysters, but not champagne. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so I think, so let's start with rosé, actually. Um, so rosé, my favorite pairing um, is chilled bandol rosé with bouillabaisse, which is a fish stew. Ah. Super flavorful and Bouillabaisse delicious. is a red sauce? Um, yeah, it picks Light up. Light red. Exactly. It's very... tomato. Um, yeah, definitely. And so that's the great thing about uh, rosé. Fish and shellfish. Yeah, fish, shellfish. Um, and it picks up almost that hue from a lot of the fish that are actually like right. red hued um, and mussels and that such. That sounds so. good to me. Bouillabaisse and rosé. That's a good pairing. <laughs> it's delicious. What about wine? So wine, uh, I'm, I, for some reason, I'm eating a lot of... Um, Pizza and Lambrusco recently. I guess Me I'm at the too. right place. <laughs> I think Lambrusco is the most underrated fun wine. It's so good. I bring it anywhere and people go, what is this? It's, it's like soda pop. I'm um, glad you said that. <laughs> yeah, it, well, good Lambrusco, a yeah. little less soda poppy, but it's got that fizz and acidity right. for the pizza. It's like a heavy red champagne. Exactly. Champagne's good with pizza. Also true. All right. Tell me outside of coat. And you're not incriminating yourself or anyone. Your favorite wine restaurant and or bar. People that you think are doing it well with their mm-hmm. attention to wine, the list, the mm-hmm. service that you've been to, you hung out or, you know, you admire. Yeah, I think my favorite restaurant in New York right now is King. Have okay. you been to King? No, but I hear only good things about it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's is kind of... Is that Tribeca or a Soho? It's, uh, it, I guess it's Soho. It's okay. right across the street from Charlie Bird. Right. Um, but I think it's really what the restaurant industry needs right now. It's run by three women. Uh, the food's delicious. And the wines are so simple, but they're all great. And um, so it's two chefs which are fem- who are female, rather. And, uh, it's a, and then a front of house lady named Annie who buys the wine. And, you know, she doesn't have a huge wine background, but she's, she's very honest. And right. it's a short list. She's doing the right stuff. It's just it's, it's what prob- you want to drink. I had Cedric Nikkei's from Eleven Madison in here, and he's got a massive list. Yeah. He swears it's harder to curate a smaller list. Absolutely. And a huge, he'll get all the burgundy. You can't make a mistake. But when you got to limit it to five of these, four of these. It's hard. And it yeah. really shows us your skill set. And they do a good job. Now, can you make an exception for rosé? Is there any bar or restaurant that's like, oh, these guys are doing a good job with the rosé? <laughs> um, you know, I'm trying... To think. I mean, I, champagne has jumped to the top of that list. Right. There's a bunch of restaurants now yeah. that have great champagne offering. Even you probably have more than yeah. We have yeah. We have a ton know, of champagne. You would have many years ago. Anybody with rosé? Um, you know, I think a lot of people now, especially towards the summer, you'll start to see it more. Start to pour more rosé, like Laura Manic at Cork Buzz. Right. She that's will, a good place. She will pour like five or ten rosés, and she'll curate. Some and you'll, she'll curate stuff. them, and they'll always they'll always rotate. Right. So she's very good at that. That's the type of place where you'll mm-hmm. fall into that type of situation. Totally. Um, do you have a favorite all-time wine? A wine that just. Is memorable, a birthday wine. Yeah, uh, I do actually. And then a rosé I want to. Go ahead. Oh, okay. First, um, the, first the wine wine. So the wine wine, um, it's a red wine from the south of France, right by the Spanish border where the Pyrenees fall into the Mediterranean Sea um, in Collioure. It's a small little fishing village, um, and it's... A wine I first drank with Lyle on our first date. and So it's experiential, situational, experiential. but delicious. But delicious. And, you know, I and was... when Lyle was away and you were alone <laughs> and you tried it again, it was still delicious? It was still delicious. Okay. Right. And so I think that's also, you know, I, I was so worried that Lyle was going to pull out some big, huge, expensive, fancy wine to try to impress me. And instead he pulled out something that was just so honest and delicious Right, so stuck with me. Tell me, I want to post this. Tell me yeah. what it is, the name of the wine. So the producer is La Tourvier, which means the old tower. Spell Tourvier for me. Uh, Tourvier is T-O-U-R, and then Vier is V-I-E-I-L-L-E. Okay, Vier old. La Tourvier. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's the Collier Rouge. Okay. Um, so that's, that's a great one. First time ever on the Grape Nation. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> now, what about a favorite all-time rosé? 
similar experience or something yeah. at top of the list to you? I mean, you know, this is, I think, every sommelier's favorite rosé, and it's every sommelier's favorite for a very specific reason, because it might be the best. And that's Domaine Tampier right. Bantle Rosé. And I think that... You know, what makes it so special is not just how it tastes, but almost every sommelier makes a pilgrimage to Domaine Tampier at some point the in their career. The whole package. The whole package. The, the terroir, the way it's made, the story, the right. consistency. And meeting with Lulu Peyrode, who's now 100 years old, right. drinks red wine like it's milk and tells dirty jokes. I mean, how can you not fall in love with her and her wine? That's for sure. All right, so Tempier, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a good one. All right, last question, and then we'll try to taste a little wine before I let you go. Give me your best wine retail for minimum of 15 bucks, 15, 20 bucks. Mm -hmm. I always say my kids are in their 20s. They're making a few bucks. They're going to a dinner. Mm -hmm. They want to bring wine. They don't want to bring crap, but they don't have a ton of money. What Mm -hmm. are they bringing for a white? What Mm -hmm. are they bringing for a red? And what are they bringing for a rosé? Yeah, so I think... Give me region, maker, both. Okay. So for, you know, for all of... For budget wines, the best thing you can do is go to a value region. So if you want to go to a big boy region like Bordeaux or Burgundy, be careful because you're not going to get the value. Okay. So for $15, I, you know, um, for a white, I would do like German Riesling. German you know, Riesling. It just, it's... There's a lot of great options there for something like light, crisp, easy drinking, um... It's really great. And you can even do something with some residual sugar if you're not scared. Right. Um, That's Riesling gets that wrap. Right. So Riesling's a good white, good value, interesting Mm -hmm. wine. What about a red? A little tougher? For red, I mean, you know, I could just talk about Cru Beaujolais all the time, but of course Beaujolais. And then, you know, go to those smaller regions as, or not necessarily smaller, but So wait, stop there for a second. Beaujolais and Cru Beaujolais. Obviously Cru Beaujolais, better than regular Beaujolais. Can be, yeah. What's the difference? Um, so Cru Beaujolais has to come from 10 specific crews in the northern right. part of Beaujolais. Morgon and... Right. Well, and they're they're often thought of as better, and, and they can be. Um, not necessarily. Not necessarily. So there's some... Probably the better value maybe in regular Beaujolais? Can be, yeah. But I would definitely look towards those classic producers, right. um, for sure. And so great value there. I mean... Now, you mentioned a couple before. Are there other producers that are good that may be a little cheaper? Yeah, for sure. Um, like Chateau Tivan's great. Domaine de la Probande is, they make a Beaujolais that's dirt cheap and okay. amazing. Um, also Domaine de Puble. Yeah, they're all, they're all great, and a lot of them are sub $20. Great. Now, give me, what rosé am I bringing? Rosé. Uh, My best $15, $20 rosé. Mm-hmm. Like, what is this? This is great. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think that it's interesting to bring a rosé that talks to a sense of place. Okay. So I think that the Domaine de Ruy Pinot Gris is a great option for that. And that's from the Loire Valley. It's did light. we mention that earlier? You did. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we'll bring that one up. So that's the best opportunity for the money and all. That's that's a great one, um, but you can also go f- to many different options right. as well. I mean, right. yeah, yeah, uh, you know, we'll put we'll post <laughs> that, but that that's a good one. All right, so those are Victoria James's uh, wine list picks. Like I said, we'll post them on our social media. We'll put them on Facebook. We'll post them on Instagram. Um, I'll make sure I get all the spelling correct. <laughs> And Victoria, our last segment is called the Weekly Wine Sip. Every week we taste a different wine on air for our Weekly Wine Sip this week. I thought I'd pull out a Bordeaux because you probably drink a lot, eat a lot of meat, and I just thought I'd go with the whole thing. So we're drinking a 2010 Chateau Fougere Bordeaux from the Saint-Emilion region of France. This wine, when it came out, retails for about 35, 40 bucks. It's probably 40, 50 bucks. Not cheap, not expensive. What else can you tell me about this wine? Yeah, so uh, this is actually a wine we also have on our list at Coat. So that's that's a good prop because yeah. you have a lot of choices. For sure. Why would you put this wine on the list? Yeah, I mean, think about a classic steakhouse. You think Bordeaux. Right. Um, and it. it or do I get? Why this particular one? So this one is from the right bank in Saint-Emilion, um, and it's 
a little bit more Cabernet Franc um, spice driven, and then it also has some nice suppleness. It has the Merlot to it. So it's kind of... What's the... Um Percentages of grapes. Do you know ballpark? Yeah, I think I don't know. I think it's mostly Merlot, Merlot with a little cap front. Yeah, but you know the, the cool thing about it is that it goes with like these fattier cuts of meat. It has that same velvet texture, um, and then it still has that grip that can kind of latch onto the fattiness and right. clean up the palate. Um, more than even other Bordeaux's. Because of the Merlot and the spiciness of the Cab Franc. Yeah. I mean, Bordeaux is a category, yes. Mm-hmm. But this particular wine sort of features that too, right? Totally. And I think that the nice thing here is about the texture. The texture is really great. Sort of this suppleness. Oh, here we go. All right. Let's give it a... Well, first, let's look at it. So it's pretty deep, dark purple, right? Mm-hmm. Very deep color. Um, let's go nose. What are you getting on the nose? Definitely some new oak and some dark fruit here. Still eight years later. Yeah. The oak is still fairly prominent, right? Yeah. So you said oak and what else? And some dark fruit. Um, Yeah, very dark fruit. Plum. And there's also like that green bell pepper note as well. Yeah, vegetal. Blackberries and currants and yeah. Yeah, the plums. I get a teeny bit of, I can barely smell (laughs) I get a teeny bit of camphor. Oh. Do you? You don't get yeah. that? Maybe it's my Vicks Vapor rub on my shirt. <laughs> All right. Maybe. So that's, let's talk mouthfeel. What are you feeling mm-hmm. here? Mouthfeel, it's super velvety and lush. You can definitely feel the new oak and it's round. Um, Very lush. It's oh, full Very like, mouth. It is feel. super hot. I think it's just the 2010 vintage. Hot alcohol? Yeah, it's definitely full bodied. Is it too high? I don't know. I mean, it definitely, it's it's high. I think when you have food with it, it's definitely different. It's okay with food. Yeah, it's 15%. That's high. It's chunky. <laughs> now, tell me this from all your uh, research. So it's a high alcohol wine. It's relatively young. As time goes by, what happens to the alcohol? Does it becomes it, more integrated. It, it, that's what happens. It integrates, it smooths out. If it's a good wine, it'll go in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on the wine. You know, and I think that a lot of these warm vintages, these hot vintages... Was 10 in Bordeaux 10, a hot vintage? It was a celebrated vintage. It was ripe for sure. Right. And, you know, but I think that you have to be careful because a lot of those wines do fall apart over time. Mm. So sometimes those less celebrated vintages can have some good value. But, you know, ripeness is important. So Will a wine like this hold up? In the cellar? Uh, that's what the critics say. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's just talk palate. Mm. So I think a lot of the nose descriptors carry through dark fruits, right? Mm-hmm. Ton of dark fruit. The acidity is still really nice, though. It's not like a not... It's very balanced. Right. What, um... You pick up oak? Yeah, there's still the, a lot of oak. There's like the vanilla the clove, baking spices. Right. Um, but you know, it's, it's kind of like, it's shed, it's the, you know, the kind of the youthful oak baby weight. It's kind of shed a bit and it's more integrated now. The tannins, are they ripe? The tannins are, uh, the tannins are also very well integrated. I think they're soft. You know, I think that Merlot helps. It's not super aggressive left bank, uh, tannic. What, um, what we've talked about this 10 times already, but let's talk specific. What do we pair this with? Think out of the box, too, besides yeah. code. I mean, we know meat, but mm-hmm. give me everything. Yeah, I mean, so I think that this can also pair well with, like, a lot of um, uh, not necessarily even grilled meats, you know, like duck pate, that sort of thing. Something that has some oiliness to it, fat some richness, some fat. Um you know, this is a big wine. It's right. almost a meal in itself. So you need something with some power that could stand and flavor. Up to it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so big foods. Do we like this wine? We like this one. Yeah. This is a good wine. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is a good wine to pull out at a meal where the foods we talked about. Yeah, for sure. Barbecue. Totally. Fatty ribs, steaks, mm-hmm. all of that. Good yeah. wine to drink at coat. Right. Perfect. All right, so that is the 2010 Chateau Fougere, a Bordeaux from Saint Emilion, still out there in the stores. Um, this type of chateau, 
they, they produce a decent amount of wine. I mean, how do we classify what type of chateau this is? In what sense? I don't know. <laughs> okay. That's why I'm asking you. It's uh, not like a fifth growth. It's not yeah. a huge commodity wine. It's it's well made with a decent amount. Of right. It's a little bit more. So it's a. I would say if I would, you know, classifying something is tricky because it's so personal. But I do. I would say it's more modern in style okay. for sure. It's definitely more. Modern, you know, they're not super judicious on the oak, right? Um, and they're not afraid of fruit and ripeness. So I think that's the only way in which I would okay. classify it. And coat is sort of a modern steakhouse. Yeah, good matchup for that. Totally. All right. Um, thank you for all those observations, Victoria. We're going to wrap up the show. Um, if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation dot com. That's sam at thegrapenation dot com. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. We'll post Victoria's wine list answers, all her wine suggestions, and we'll post uh, the weekly wine sip that we tasted. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby, and now you could follow hashtags. Follow hashtag The Grape Nation. Um, and at Twitter at BenRuby. Victoria, you have a cool Instagram and Twitter <laughs> handle. Where can we follow you? So at Get Your Grape On, spelled U R, get your grape. G E T G R A P E U R. G E T U R G R A P E O N. So right. get your grape on. Now, are you okay with that now? Were you drunk when you did that? Do you want a new one? Do you love <laughs> no, it? I, mean, I want to keep it. I like it. It's good. It keeps me approachable. No, no, I like it. It's good. Um, and if people want to find more out about Coat, mm-hmm. they can go to the website. Yeah, they can go to their webs- uh, our website, rather, or you can shoot me a message. Okay. Um, on the website, it's a beautiful website. I've been on it. Thank you. The whole you. wine list is on it. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, information about the food, the meat, the cuisine, the people, and all of that. Um, and if you have a chance, you know, get over there and look for Victoria. All right, Victoria, thank you for coming on The Grape Nation. Victoria James is the wine director at Coat Korean Barbecue, Coat Steakhouse. She's the author of Drink Pink, A Celebration of Rosé. I'm assuming you can go on Amazon and get it tomorrow. Yeah. Better bookstores probably Mm -hmm. have it in the wine and food section. Mm -hmm. Um, We want to thank our engineer, Vitor, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Benruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Ever wonder what kind of podcast Julia Child would have made? Probably would have been one where she introduced you to all of her latest discoveries and favorite people. And that's exactly the tradition we're following on Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Join me, Todd Shulkin, your host, and the Foundation's Executive Director, as I bring you inside the Foundation's world to meet the bright lights of today's food universe, just as Julia used to do from her own famous kitchen. New episodes air on Heritage Radio Network, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. Listen in.